caution. Listening to this podcast may motivate you to make positive changes in your life, identify ways to accelerate your career trajectory and develop a path towards financial freedom. This is the Career Meets World podcast, and I'm your host, Edward Gorbis. And I've spent the last 10 years focused on helping thousands of people advance their career while in parallel teaching a secret recipe to reach financial independence. And I'm here to share the untold stories of successful people and teach thousands of listeners how to develop a growth mindset. Our minds are malleable and everyone has the power to change their mindset through perseverance, dedication, and a passion for learning. So if you're ready to skyrocket your business and financial literacy, turn up the volume and let's dive right in. This is the Career Meets World podcast. Today's guest is simply a powerhouse. She's the global VP of customer success at WeWork and previously built the customer success team at Trustpilot. If you were to grab a dictionary right now and search tenacity, Jordan Garner would be in the definition. She's earned her bachelor's degree in computer science and business from Georgia Tech. She then went on to master the art of uncovering and empowering talent all over the world by building a team of A-list performers. It's our first ever episode, and I'm honestly so excited that we're able to take the time with Jordan and hear her journey as Career Meets World achieves one of our first milestones. As one of the most passionate and smartest people I've ever met, I couldn't think of a better first guest. Since I'm a huge believer in building relationships throughout your career, we're not only going to discuss Jordan's journey from engineering to senior leadership at WeWork, but we're going to dive in deep and unpack the importance of building lasting relationships throughout your entire life. Jordan, thanks so much for joining today and being our first ever guest. Thank you so much for having me, Edward, and thank you for the very, I am unworthy of the intro that you just gave, but um, I'm so excited to be here as well and just to be part of this amazing uh, thing that you're building. So thank you. Of course. It's great to have you, and you're always way too humble. And as I think about our relationship and as we've gone to know each other over the last two years, and we've definitely gone through ups and downs in many moments and had a lot of great conversations. But what I really want to do today is understand the true Jordan Garner and how far you've come and how you've gotten here. So to do so, let's go all the way back. And when you're super young, what did you think you actually want to be when you grow up? (laughs) Uh, It's funny. I recently found um, my like elementary school yearbook. I didn't even realize that was a thing. And in fifth grade, I wanted to be about 10 different things. But the first thing on the list was president. And then there was a myriad of other things like teacher and international pop star and a few others there. But I, it's funny because I, I do remember wanting to be president. And then I also remember the day that I decided I no longer wanted to be president. And that was really when I saw some article or something when I was, I think I was in middle school about how much being president ages you. And I saw something about the before and after shots of uh, various presidents and how much, you know, their hair grayed and they got wrinkles and bags under their eyes. And I was like, and... I'm out. This is no longer for me. So it started at president and and went downhill from there. (laughs) That's really funny. The truth is you'd probably make 
an incredible first female president of this country. So if it's yeah. not too late. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. I, I'd have I'd have a lot of catching up to do. And I'd also need to hire a lot of reputation management people to fix all of the things I've done wrong in my past. But thank you. <laughs> Speaking of reputation management, you had previously worked at a Danish company called Trustpilot, where you had the opportunity to build out a customer success team. And even though you might have not become president, you did an incredible job scaling out the team there. And it's a very pivotal point in your career where you were able to excel, grow a team, take on new opportunities. So can you share with us what that journey was like? Yeah. Um, Trustpilot was an amazing few years. I had an incredible time there. I, um, to that point, had spent many years working in customer success and account management, specifically in the marketing technology space, mostly with SaaS companies. It was actually a connection from my network, a previous head of sales I worked with, had gone over to really build out the US office for Trustpilot at the time. They were headquartered, well, they're still headquartered out of Copenhagen, but they were almost entirely out of Europe to that point. So I joined there and got to build the customer success organization in the US from the ground up, which was the first time I had ever done that. And it was an amazing opportunity to just learn a lot, make a lot of mistakes and get a few things right also. The thing I got the most right was I hired amazing people. I've kept that with me throughout my career. That's really where it all starts. You can't get any of the other stuff right uh, if you don't get the right people on board. We had a pretty traditional customer success model there with upfront onboarding, you know, really focused on the integration piece and then the ongoing relationship management. Trustpilot, they're an online reviews platform and they were really getting into this whole concept of, you know, building trust online at a time when it was pretty, you know, much still the wild, wild west, but everyone started to understand that it was absolutely essential to launching a successful online business. And so it was a really interesting time because it was technically it was a B2B to C business, right? Where we were working directly with businesses who were, who were paying us, but our end users were actual consumers and navigating the tensions between those two groups was, was really interesting and really difficult and really a great learning experience. So I helped build that team out and, and really build out the customer journey. And it was really, really interesting. And then um, I got an opportunity to move over and lead the marketing team for a while. And that was kind of like my stretch assignment. I was very nervous about it. But we had had a lot of um, turnover with marketing leadership. So I took over there and learned just so much. I built an incredible respect for marketing leaders. It is such a hard, hard job. It's one of those things where people want instant results, but with no investment and your attributions always, you know, messed up. It's just a really difficult journey, but it's one that's absolutely essential to any business, especially one that wants to achieve hyper growth. It was a great experience and I absolutely love my time there. Highly recommend checking them out. Anybody that is looking for roles, I know they're, they're always hiring. So yeah, that's kind of my Trustpilot story. <laughs> I feel like Trustpilot should be paying you some royalties right now because you're doing a great job pitching them. Naturally, we've both learned over our careers that being in a client-facing role certainly warrants a lot of attention internally from a variety of different stakeholders. As your journey evolved at Trustpilot and you went from customer success to marketing, I know as you transitioned into the marketing role, there were some challenges and it's not always as easy as we might think to go into a different role within the company, but you certainly learn a tremendous amount. Share with us a little bit about what inflection point was like and what you experienced. Yeah, it's really, really hard. You know, I 
took for granted when you are in customer success and account management, your connection to the client is so strong and you don't even realize it. I think a lot of times us that are client facing, it's just easy to forget what it's like. And you know, when you take on the responsibility, when you join an organization as a head of customer success or account management or even sales, what the leadership team is giving you, they're entrusting with you the relationships with all of your customers. It is a huge amount of responsibility. And I think sometimes we forget about that and we get lost in the day-to-day conversations and the bugs and the issues and the feedback, but you own those client relationships. It's so, so huge, but there's so much power that comes from that as well. And so much insight and having that direct relationship to the client is so important. And the hardest part for me moving into marketing was I lost that. I was in a position of having to think really strategically because I I was focused on both product marketing. So how we tiered the product and how we marketed the product and our go-to-market pitch, but also our acquisition channels. And every day that I sat in marketing, I felt like I was losing that connection with what the clients want and their challenges, their goals, and how they saw value in the product. Um, And I found that to be really hard. And it made me have such a greater appreciation for having that direct relationship with the client. You know, once I did return to customer success and account management at WeWork, um, how important and how precious of a resource that is, just earning the client's time, having the client's time and, and having that relationship So that was the hardest thing for me. And it was funny because subsequently, and this will tell you what a nerd I am, I've had so many actual nightmares like (laughs) of losing touch with what the customers are saying and and what drives them because it, it made me realize in that moment when I moved into marketing that the only thing that separates us from the opposite of what I want to be, which is like maybe used car salesmen selling on price versus value is that connection to the customer and really understanding their motivations. And so that was the, that was the hardest part. It's a dramatized version of, of that, but you know, it's hard and, and speaking to clients, it's just, it's something that I'll never take for granted again. (laughs) Well, hopefully you're getting more sleep now because you're back to leading another customer success team at WeWork. And you're right, though, that it's important to keep touch with what's happening in the industry, what our clients need, what they're asking for, what some of their challenges and tribulations are. We've discussed this before, that certainly the people on our teams are the ones that are instrumental to figuring out what the customers want, what they need. And we've both been fortunate to hire some of the best people in the industry. And with that being said, you've alluded to this before, that People are the bread and butter of our teams and our successes overall. So let's dig into that a little bit and really understand what makes an A-list performer. So from your perspective, I'd love to hear what are some of the qualities and tendencies of the people on your team that made them so successful? And hopefully our listeners can continue to emulate those people. Oh, such a good question. High performers, there's a lot to unpack there, right? Somebody that really earns a promotion, as you said, first of all, it shouldn't be something that they have to ask for, right? If somebody that earns your promotion, it gets to the point where they are doing a different job than they started with, right? A materially different job with not only bigger results, but more responsibility, more autonomy, more expertise. So it's got to be all of it. It can't just be, I'm continuously exceeding my sales goal, right? It has to be exceeding the goal 
and inheriting, whether it's like bigger accounts or more accounts and taking on additional stretch leadership responsibilities and projects and being able to do all this with less help from your manager and just having more expertise about the product in the industry. I think it's really the combination of all those. It should get to the point where one day as your manager, you're evaluating uh, one of your team members' performance and you're saying they're doing a materially different job now um, without me even asking, then, then I hired them for obviously in a positive direction, not a negative one. And I think that's, that's really the key. Um, and checking, checking all of those boxes, proactivity, the, the bias towards action piece of that is probably one of the most important, just having that tendency of when you see something wrong or broken, your solutions oriented. And so instead of going to complaining or talking to your manager about the problem, you immediately jump to how can I fix it? And how can I not only fix it just for me, but for the greater good, the greater team, our clients, etc. And that's, when I think about all the people I've promoted and the people that have really, again, really earned that promotion and without even, you know, often having to ask for it, that's what they have in common. So yeah, that, those are all the, the big boy stuff. And I'll just call it again, the autonomy piece. I think that's understated, but I have come to realize as someone that has natural micromanagement tendencies, which I do because I'm a perfectionist, that the only way I can be successful is if my team members work towards becoming autonomous and taking over pieces of my current job. And the only way that's possible is if I trust them to do so. And so earning that trust and that trust and autonomy is also just a huge, huge part of it because you can't promote people under you if you aren't also promotable. It doesn't mean those promotions have to happen at the same time, but there's a natural sense of everyone kind of moving forward, if that makes sense. You're completely right. And what I've been taught is that the product of relationships is leadership. And what you're describing here is really a rising tide that as people on your team work hard and are continuously successful, everyone more or less will be successful in that team. But it all stems from true and great relationships, which you've taken the time to build throughout your career. I believe that's why most people value working with you, Jordan. And that's really what I want to hit on next is relationships as a whole, how people foster them, why they're valued, why they're so important. I think we all know that subsequently they help teams become more productive. But what's at the root of relationships and how does one foster great relationships in the workplace? Yeah, um, it is absolutely key. And it's not just about those external relationships. It's often actually more about internal relationships. And I think that, you know, if there was any doubt in my mind before coming to WeWork that that was the key, WeWork really solidified it because so much of what we did to advocate for our clients to help build those external relationships was based on internal relationships. So, so huge. I think there's a few things you know, there, the first is really the authenticity of the relationships. Like it actually took me a long time to put words to this concept. And they're actually very simple words, which is just that all business, all accounts, all customers, all clients, all partnerships, whatever, all members, if you work at WeWork, all whatever fancy lingo you want to put to that relationship. At the end of the day, the other person at the end of that relationship is still just a person. It's still just a human. There's no 
a business is not an actual thing. It's just a construct. It's just a word we use to group people and share goals together. You know, everyone's just humans on the other side of that phone, on the other side of that email. And we're all driven by the same desires, both personally and professionally to succeed, you know, and there's different iterations of that, but all just, just humans. And I think, I know early in my career when I was starting to become client facing and sometimes would get nervous about getting in a room or getting on the phone with someone that I considered more senior than me and more tenured than me, or even in a, in a place where we have like kind of a negative situation to discuss, returning to the fact that we are all just humans and innately made of kind of the same atoms, like literally the same physical particles and such sorry, people that are into science, I'm using the wrong words, but I think that's the most important thing to remember first of all. And if you remember that, it removes a lot of the false narratives that we put in our head around who we should or shouldn't talk to or build relationships with and allows you to return to kind of your authentic self of just building a relationship with another human being the same way you would anywhere else in your life. Um, In line with that authenticity, I think playing to your strengths and recognizing your strengths as a human and not trying to become a business robot. I've been in the startup game for a while and there's like this old series of funny YouTube videos. They're probably so, so old and outdated now. I think it was called like the startup guys. Um, And we all know, you know, the personification of those people, which are, you know, somebody that, you know, is one person when they're home with their family and friends, and then they turn on their business voice. Um, And we all have a little bit of a business voice. That's okay. But they turn on this whole different persona when they go into work. And I've just found that to really, really not work. So recognizing who you are as a person, and then like using that to create real authentic relationships, real trusting relationships, and personal relationships to a point with both your clients and and, and your coworkers. And I think that's so, so important. And then the third thing I think is just like the empathy and compassion that comes with building real relationships. And, and again, it, it returns to that everyone on the other side of that phone is a human thing, but just always reminding yourself that you, when you talk to a client or you talk to a coworker, you're talking to them, maybe you have a 30 minute meeting with them, right? But the other 23 and a half hours of that day, You have no idea what is happening in their life and what other conversations they're having personally or professionally. So that 30 minute chunk, first of all, that's amazing that you get that time with them because we all are so, so busy, but you're seeing such a narrow crack into their life. And to just keep that in check with whatever reactions may surface, emotions or what have you, you're seeing such a very small piece of their entire self and they're seeing a small piece of yours. So those are always things that I've found very helpful to remember, particularly being client facing, but also internally too, when you are advocating for your clients and maybe you're not getting the urgency or response that you wish you get on the other side of that. Those are nice things to kind of keep that perspective. I couldn't have said that better myself. And you hit on one of the most critical components of relationships, which is empathy. And you're right. We have so many different things floating around in our lives right now. uh, And it's vital that we think through before jumping on any phone call, any Zoom meeting, Cisco, WebEx, whatever platform you might be using these days. But with that said, we have to think about what's going on in the other person's lives, whether it's a client or somebody internally in the workplace. Let's think through what they might be going through and what they might be experiencing. 
And a huge part of building relationships is maintenance and sustaining them because oftentimes we rely on a lot of the relationships that we've built to hopefully help us either in the workplace or even transition to a new role. And as we were talking about this before we jumped on, the recording is that many people are going through transitions right now. And it's a very interesting environment to be looking for a role and potentially even switching industries. And we've both done this throughout our careers. And I'd love for you to kind of walk us through what that experience is like for somebody to potentially switch into a new role, try to land a promotion, or even more so just completely pivoted into a different industry. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's so many considerations. First of all, if, if you are on that journey, you've taken the first step. It's very uncomfortable. And again, whether you decided that for yourself or not, it's very uncomfortable to get in that mode, right? It's starting a job hunt and starting a new job. No one finds those things fun. Like let's all just like put it out there in the open. It's nice to be comfortable. And those things are very, very uncomfortable. So I think being upfront with yourself that, you know, this is going to be uncomfortable. And then, and that's kind of it. That's the deal. But there's so much to be gained from it is a good first step. I think some other things to consider, you know, one being targeted to a point, right? I, I think especially in this moment in time, in this COVID environment and recession signals and things like that, being targeted is important, right? Casting a really wide net can be dangerous in the sense that, you will only go so deep uh, with each one. And inherently, if you're very targeted and very specific, I think you will have a tendency to push harder on those things that you've identified as where you exactly want to be in terms of role, company, industry, whatever it is. However, I think there's also danger in being too targeted in the sense that you sometimes think you want one thing and, and in fact, something else ends up being the way you want to go. And, and I have fallen victim to this time and time again. There's a dating analogy in there somewhere. I know this isn't a dating show, Edward, unless you want it today, we can go that route that somebody says, well, my type of person is this type of person. And then a lot of times they end up with something very different. If you aren't having enough exploratory conversations and taking them far enough, you'll never understand if something else might feel good, might feel like a fit. And so don't limit yourself based on your experience or what you think you want. I would push yourself to get a little bit outside what you typically look at, whether it's you usually go to small companies and you're going to look at big companies or big companies to small companies or different industries or different roles. Don't be intimidated by the fact that your experience might not be a perfect fit. You know, two things there. You tell your story the way you want to tell your story. You choose the words, you choose the results you focus on, you choose the skill sets that you bring out in interviews. Um, you get to decide that narrative. You know, you need to practice it and you need to make it make sense and it shouldn't be, you know, made up. But whatever you have written on your resume, whatever the formal title was or formal roles and responsibilities, we all know there's so much outside of that that we do. So you get to decide how you tell the story and how it fits in whatever you might want to do next. And the other thing is just removing, again, those silly barriers that we put in our brains of what we are or are not capable of. I think as I have worked for more years and met more senior people, and I've met so many amazing leaders and worked for so many amazing leaders, so this isn't to put down that, but you realize how little 
differentiates you from very, very senior people in terms of actual skill sets. Sure, maybe they have, you know, decades more of experience than you and they've worked at a half a dozen more companies than you and they've seen some stuff, right? And there, there's there's value to seeing stuff and, and just having like tenure. But from a pure skills perspective, what really separates you is there is there some books that they read and some secret knowledge that they have that makes them, you know, more a fit for that role than you know. I mean, absolutely not. So you get to decide that narrative. You get to decide exactly how you tell your story and do not let um, reading these job descriptions where people naturally, you know, inflate, um, oh, you must have this X, Y, Z exact qualification. You get to decide. So I, I think that's a big one. And Obviously, I'm not encouraging everyone to go apply for jobs that are, you know, 10 times <laughs> above their level, um, but I just hate to see people get in their own way. And, and so, yeah, so those are, those are some pieces that I would highlight. Just, you know, believe in yourself. Very cliche, but, but do it. <laughs> it might be cliche, but you're absolutely right. Storytelling is a critical part of who we are and how we communicate our narrative to future employers and to our leadership at existing companies. Some of the most successful people that you and I both know have certainly mastered the art of storytelling. However, you and I also know that the playing field isn't always necessarily equal for males and females. And at CareerMates World, our goal is to build a completely inclusive community for either gender or anyone of different races. And I'd love for you to help us demystify how women can more boldly share their stories. Yeah, it's so hard. I I can speak personally. Two things have really gotten in my way of going after you know, what I think I should go after. And it's come back to frustrate me every single time. And one is not seeing women in the positions that I want. It's something that you won't admit out loud. And sometimes it just lives in your subconscious that if you don't see people um, that are like you, particularly, I think, you know, from a gender perspective in the roles that you want, there's a little part of you that believes that you can't do it or won't get it or won't like it once you're there or won't be successful once you're there. Even if there is a woman, I've even had a case where there has been women in a woman in that in that senior role, and maybe she wasn't the best at it, and then that somehow colored my own perception of my ability to do that job, which is just as silly as if I saw a man that wasn't as successful in a role in a senior role and that coloring it right, like because every single human is completely independent and individual. So I think that's one, and then the second is like really. And I say this for women because this took me so long and I still work on this all of the time, which is asking for what you want. Things will not be served to you on a silver platter is what it comes down to. And people can't read your mind. And if you're not incredibly direct about what you want, then you won't get it. And I think it's scary to say those words, but you have to keep telling yourself that the worst that can happen is that they say no. And that's it. That's the worst. That's actually the very worst. They say no and you walk away and you're a little sad and your feelings are hurt. And that is always a better scenario than you never asked in the first place and you never knew. And the other danger from never asking is that 
they won't know that you were even interested in the first place. So I think getting out of our own way in terms of asking for exactly what we want, being very specific and being in that moment, not humble, right? Being very clear about our value and what we've done and very specific. I think that's incredibly important and and it just takes practice. Like there's no book that you're going to read and it's going to like dawn on you and you're going to wake up and you're going to be like, I am amazing. And I am, I can do all of these things and I can have any job I want. It's never going to work like that. It's just about practicing. It's about literally writing down the words you want to say to your boss when you go in and ask for that next promotion or raise or writing down how you're going to advocate for yourself in a negotiation for a new role or whatever it is. And then saying the words and then doing it again and then doing it again. And every single time it will feel a little bit easier and a little bit more comfortable. And that's it. It's just practicing. So those are, those are my top tips for how you get out of your own way, uh, whether you're a female or a man. And just keep in mind, you miss hundred percent of the shots you don't take. I hate using sports analogies, but that's just the best. That's the best one. You miss them if you don't take them. <laughs> well, you did pick the best one because hockey is my favorite sport. So <laughs> shout out is a good one always. <laughs> you sense. hit on something that's perfect though, which is you have to keep trying. And even if you get no's over and over and over again, male or female, it's important to at least try. My my most interesting, my favorite example is Jack Ma, who's the founder and CEO of Alibaba. I think he was rejected from Harvard approximately 10 times. And I remember reading an anecdote or a true story actually where he was one out of 24 people that applied to KFC and was rejected as well. So if there are individuals in the world who fail from Harvard or get rejected from Harvard and KFC and then start a multi-billion dollar company, I think the least we can do is try. Yes, 100%. And just a quick like story, personal story on that. And not a lot of people know this, but so coming out of college, you know, I was graduating in the midst of um, our last big recession. And I was one of the lucky few that because of my technical degree, I was able to get a few offers. I took a job with Bank of America in New York. You know, this was on my way to fulfilling my lifelong dream of moving to the big city. I had all my plans set to move. I had my apartment lined up and a week before I was moving, I found out that because of a crazy happenstance fluke, my security clearance for Bank of America didn't come through. It was a long process. And so they were going to have to start it over. It would take like nine months basically. And so I, but I already had like a rent to pay and it was like terrible and crazy, you know, welcome to the real world. I moved to New York anyway, and I made it my job to find a job. I found a job and I found a job that was much better suited for me in the end. What a enormous blessing in disguise. Like truly everything does happen for a reason, even though in the moment it certainly does not feel like it. And everyone's like, wow, you found a job so quick. What they didn't see was I applied to over 1000 jobs. I interviewed at over a hundred companies. I mean, I literally, I was working a hundred hours a week applying to jobs and I, and I got rejected from the vast majority of them. But I, I cast an incredibly wide dent in this search and um, and nobody kind of saw that piece of it. And so, and, and, and the same thing has been true for me, you know, throughout my career. So I think everyone gets rejected. Everyone doesn't get the job. Everyone, there's no one that has gotten every job. I, I like 
swear to you, I promise you, even Barack Obama, I'm sure he's been rejected from a job. You have to make it your job to do that. Um, and do not get discouraged because it's just, it is a timing thing it is a right place, right time. And, and it will come through when the right thing is there. You know what I mean? So a little personal antidote. <laughs> I love it. If only I had a full team to fact check whether Barack Obama has actually <laughs> been rejected. We'll look that up later. Okay. Let's shift gears. I want to talk a little bit about your relationship with personal finance. We won't go super deep, but it's important to understand that as somebody who has been incredibly successful in their career and has clearly outlined a lot of areas where you might have had some failures, let's go back further and think about your first job, your first dollar you've ever earned. What did you do to earn it? And what was your first decision with that first dollar? Did you buy something? Did you invest it? What ended up happening? Yeah, yeah. So I am about to expose a side of myself that I am not proud of. Um, and I have had a historically very toxic relationship with money that has only changed really in my 30s, so pretty recently. And with it has come great empowerment. But I will tell you, I am not the case study for this in any way. My my first job, I was a babysitter and a nanny uh, growing up all through my high school years. And I also basically like an, a junior office manager for a friend of my parents who ran a private uh, medical office and a few other things. And I helped do bookkeeping and, and taxes and uh, lots of fun administrative stuff like that and actually learned a great deal early on. Um, and then in college, I also bartended. And I say that because working in food service builds and hospitality builds incredible character and also encourages really bad money, <laughs> like financial management best practices if you're not careful. So with, you know, working as a waitress or bartender, you know, your, your income tends to fluctuate greatly. And unless you are very, very careful about saving and how you budget, um, you will make very bad decisions, which is exactly what I did. Uh, so I would say my initial relationship with money based on these jobs and my kind of first dollars that I earned was very bad. I was not a saver. I, you know, I say I put away a little bit, but for the most most part, I wasn't used to having extra income or income at all to that point, or I never really got like an allowance from my parents or anything like that. And, you know, my parents were always pretty tight on money and, and they like, actually one of the only things my parents ever thought about growing up was money. So I was just very intimidated by money and I adopted very early on a don't think about it mentality. So by that, I mean like don't understand how much you're actually netting in. Don't understand how much you're spending. Just spend spend when you feel like it. Don't understand how much you have at any given point. And this led to terribly toxic <laughs> personal finance relationship with in my early years, really, for a long time. So there it is, Edward. What you didn't know about me, my dirty secret, is I was horrific at managing my own finances until really, honestly, the last few years. And that's totally okay because you hit on something super important, uh, which is you started changing that relationship even a couple of years ago. And it's better to do it now than never. Uh, I think we've both seen people kind of squander away at money throughout their career. And even in their 40s, 50s, 60s, they don't leave room for a 401k. So I'm curious, based on what you learned, based on those experiences that you shared openly with us, yes. what 
what changed for you and what would you recommend for somebody kind of just starting out their career? Yeah. So I basically in college, I ran on basically a $0 bank account at all times. And because of this, I overdrafted constantly. And the way that I didn't let that distract me from schoolwork and also partying um, was I never, ever looked at my bank account. I just ignored it. I literally forgot the passcode. And I was able somehow to survive like this for many years and even into early years in New York when I was running at a very shoestring budget. Obviously, New York is very, very expensive. Um, but it got to a point where it was like, it was giving me anxiety. It was giving me crazy anxiety. For a long time, that was my way of avoiding anxiety was just avoid, avoid, avoid. Don't think about it. Don't plan for it. And just, you know, only in the most dire situations, do you address it? And then you, you know, ask your parents for a loan or whatever. But it started swinging in the opposite direction where I realized that by avoiding it, I was creating um, so much anxiety um, inside myself and anxiety for, you know, my partner. And especially as I started to think about long-term goals that I had for myself and my family. Um, and as I started thinking about having kids and things like that, I was so stressed out that I did not have my arms around my finances. The way that I approached that and changing that was first with some education. So I am one of those people that I'm very intimidated by things I don't understand. And I didn't obviously understand uh, finances. And so I spent some time talking to people that were really good at them. And I read some books and I listened to some podcasts and I didn't go super deep. Um, that wasn't my intent. I knew I wanted to, you know, use an advisor and, and there's a lot of people that are much better at it than me like you. So I wasn't trying to become an expert, but I needed to know the words. I needed to understand a little bit more about what my options were for how to plan for financial goals and goal setting and things like that. So I did that at first and I talked to a lot of people that I trusted that were doing a good job managing their finances and asked them what they did, how they got back on track or how they how they stayed on track from the beginning and ask their recommendations. And then it really just took myself and my partner sitting down and just saying, we are going to create these deadlines because my, my husband is also not um, and very financially savvy, bad combination, both of us. And we sat down and we set deadlines for ourselves just the, just in the way that we would set deadlines in our work. Cause we both, we're both good workers. We were, we, we, you know, are good at being accountable for deliverables that we have in our jobs, but not as much um, personally. So we just created deadlines and deliverables for ourselves. And we just had to do it. We wrote it down um, and we held each other accountable. Um, and we took them in small baby steps. We didn't want to become uh, day traders overnight. That was not the goal, but we had small goals. Uh, we found an advisor that we really trusted through recommendations from friends. And he made it really, really easy for us. And we thought, you know, we would kind of send it, throw, throw it over the fence to our advisor and then say, okay, you know, let tell us once a year, how's it going? But it's actually been the opposite. We've, because we have this new confidence, personally, I am less anxious about it. I actually love signing in now to, you know, my brokerage accounts and seeing how things are going. Am I up? Am I down? It doesn't give me any anxiety. And in fact, I swear the quality of my sleep, <laughs> I know this might sound crazy, but the quality of my sleep has improved since I took control of my personal finances. 
I just never thought that would be the case because for so long it was such a source of anxiety for me. And now it's the opposite feeling. I feel empowered and I feel in control and I feel um, like I get to decide my own destiny. And it's made me more confident in my professional life um, as well. So it's a really interesting correlation. I never would have thought that would have been the case, but it is. So if you're like me and you're scared and you're anxious about money, let me just tell you, it's so much better on the other side. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that, Jordan. It's not always easy to be honest or disclose some of our own experiences with personal finances. To be honest, I had somewhat of a myopic attitude towards personal finances until I really started digging in deep and understanding a lot of the complexities as well as the opportunities to figure out how to manage money in different ways. And it sounds like for you, the greatest opportunity was to partner with the financial advisors and that relieved some of that anxiety as well as opened up new doors for you and your family. So I'm proud of you for doing that. And as we continue to build out Career Meets World and talk about new opportunities for people to start investing, managing their money, understanding how to build a relationship with their personal finances, and it will certainly empower many people. So as we wrap up, I'd like our listeners to have an even more holistic view of Jordan Garner and have a minute to really ask you a few quick and simple questions. And to really get us started, what are some of the best resources that have helped guide your career? Oh, resources. My network, first of all, is huge. Like I used to be really intimidated by the word network when I was younger. It sounded like something so formal. Your network is nothing formal. It is literally just people you've met, relationships you've built. Um, And there's all kinds on the spectrum, but generally you don't need to like have someone as a best friend or, you know, a formal mentor to ask them for help. People like helping. So lean into your network, which are just, again, humans and relationships. And so nothing to be intimidated by there. That's always number one for me. Number two, I think is People that I admire their career trajectory, even if it's not the same as my own. So I think at first I I usually looked for mentors and advice from people who were like in the same field as me, worked the same types of companies as me, had the same experience. That's not necessary. A lot of the business acumen and advice and just confidence and motivation um, that you can get from other people can come from anybody, you know, regardless of discipline or role or experience. So people that you see where you admire their trajectory, reach out, have a coffee. I've been, I've walked away from some of those conversations with valuable nuggets and action steps that have changed the course of my career. So do it. That's it. Those are my two. As you mentioned, it sometimes only takes just one conversation to fundamentally change the course of our lives. And with many listeners hearing your story, your journey, and your success, I'm sure many of them would love to connect with you and interact with you in the future. So what's one great way for them to stay in touch, get to know Jordan, and reach out to you? LinkedIn, pretty responsive there, or my personal email address. It's just jordanrosegmail.com. G at gmail.com. I'm not good at Facebook. I'm not great at Instagram. I've recently downloaded TikTok, but I haven't figured out how to use it yet. So I'd say LinkedIn or a personal email. <laughs> when we figure out TikTok together, I think well, <laughs> that'll be a next level. 
Perfect. <laughs> awesome. So my favorite moment in the show is the hot seat. These are very, very simple questions, but uh, we're going to try to challenge you and see where we land. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. All right. Cryptocurrency, yay or nay? Oh, I am so intrigued by it. I am yay if you're comfortable with it. I, I don't think like just anybody should like go in on some cryptocurrency, but if you're, you know, if you're not too risk averse and if you understand it, like that's amazing. It's just another interesting way of investing. And, and I, I think it's fascinating. Yay. Awesome. On that vein, if you could invest in anything, what would it be? If I could invest in anything, I mean, I would invest in a company. I, I, I don't know what company specifically, but I, I like seeing companies succeed and I've always wanted to be um, mega rich so that I could be an investor in companies and um, watch them flourish based on my investment. So yeah, a business. Would it be public or private? Probably private to start, just so that it's a little bit more direct. I mean, obviously, I'd want to like advise that company as well. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, probably private to start. Obviously, I, I do invest in public companies in a very small way. So, yeah, I, I think that would be cool. Awesome. And, and finally, the last and burning question on many people's minds, if you could travel anywhere and spend three months there, where would you go and why? Um, oh, God, this is so hard. I, any city, I think, I mean, I want to go somewhere very culturally different to really soak it up for three months because three months is like enough time to really to get a little bite of culture. So I guess I would probably say Tokyo or maybe like Sao Paulo. I'm very intrigued by Brazil, but yes, that's a really hard question. I would, oh God, I have so many places on my list, especially now when all, now that we're in COVID time and all I do is dream about traveling places. So <laughs> tough question. <laughs> yeah. If you're like me, you're probably just staring at screensavers right now and daydreaming. A hundred percent. I have a list, like my must travel list, and it's getting to the point where it's, it's untenable. Yes. <laughs> Not realistic anymore. <laughs> awesome. Well, Jordan, you made it through the hot seat. Thanks so much for joining the show today. We touched on a lot in a short period of time, whether it's building deep relationships, finding a job amidst a recession, or finding peace with your personal finance management. You somehow always seem to figure it out. And at the center of it, you always manage to persevere. And for those interested in connecting with Jordan, we'll share her contact information in the show notes. Thanks, listeners. Until next time. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Career Meets World podcast. I would love to get to meet you. There are a couple of ways we can connect. You know I love my LinkedIn. Simply search for Career Meets World or Edward Gorbis and feel free to connect. Second is via Instagram at Career Meets World. And third is through our website. I have a special spot for you full of fun, free resources. All you have to do is go to careermeetsworld.com, subscribe to our newsletter, and we'll provide you the free resources to help you boost your career and reach financial freedom. And if this podcast was helpful to you in any way, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. This helps us help more people. Simply tap the rate with five stars 
and leave a sentence with what you liked about the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Remember, strengthening your growth mindset is your ticket to success. I'm Edward Gorbis, and we'll catch you on next week's episode.